though. If、uh, all of the world's philosophy was compared to a garden, Advaita Vedanta or Hindu non-duality might be considered the most fragrant flower in that garden,、uh, and that is because a mere intellectual understanding alone of this system of thought is of the highest. Moral good, because it produces in one who understands perfect compassion and perfect service. It is of the highest political good because it engenders the most sublime conception of democracy and equality, not based on personhood, bodies, or any of that, but based on the simple fact of awareness. Perhaps Kantian idealism writ large,、um, and it's of the ultimate personal good. Because the mere intellectual understanding of this philosophy can give us a glimpse into the penultimate consummation of a human life. That is, it can give us a glimpse into a state wherein we abide permanently in a relaxed, spacious openness, a kind of fearlessness that is completely free of any fear of death, any fear of loss, and also、uh, a deep and abiding bliss that escapes all. Categorization. That's why Saint Paul,、uh, Paul the Apostle, he was at loss when it came to describing what this state was like in actuality, and he said, "Suffice to say, it's the peace that passeth all understanding." <laughs> so. Um, today, what we're going to do is we're going to impart, hopefully, an intellectual understanding at least of that framework, if not an actual experience. But we're going to do it a little differently today. You know, usually, all we do is we look at arguments from the prakaranas or the introductory text to Advaita Vedanta, or we look at the poetry of the source texts like the Upanishads, and together we try to arrive not at a belief. Not at a concept, but at an actual experience as to what it is these texts are talking about. So make no mistake, the goal is not to leave you、um, with a concept that you can impress friends with at the next dinner party. You know, the goal is not to make you smarter. <laughs> the goal is the complete dissolution of the mind, or at least the deprioritization of the mind in light of some deeper state of being. And for that, it、uh, it's an experience that we want. These arguments are means to an end. The end being an experience here and now of the truth. You know, if there is a truth, it's not here. It's here. It's to be felt, and it's to be felt together. So usually, usually that's what we do. You know, we look at Drig Drishya Viveka. We walk through Panchadesi. We do all of that. Today, we're going to do it in a slightly different way. We're going to approach Advaita Vedanta through the lens of its various historical opponents. So, in our tradition, we call this Purva Paksha, meaning opponent or uh, uh, devil's advocate, if you will. And in order to understand Advaita Vedanta, we'll look at the、uh, competing schools. We'll see the positions that those schools take, and most importantly, we'll look at the objections leveled against Advaita by those schools and see if we can successfully、um, defend ourselves from said objections. And as you know. Indian philosophy, at the heart of it, is debate. Like disagreement or dialectic makes us all better, you know. So at the heart of Indian philosophy is not some moral authority saying this and this and this. It's someone proposing something that begs debate, that begs your challenge. 
You know, so at any point in today's lecture, uh, feel free to drop into the chat a question or a challenge. As you know, at the end of the lecture, we open the floor for hours of questions and answers. So that will also be a debate space. Uh, please feel free to push back on this philosophy because any philosophy that is accurately mapped to human fulfillment should be able to stand up against the test of debate. You know, it should be able to explain itself. And if it can't, it ought to be chucked aside. You know, it must meet the rigors of the intellect. And the beauty of Advaita Vedanta is that it can, you know, um, and let us show you. <laughs> so that's, let's have some fun with it. Um, we're going to explore Advaita Vedanta against three other main orientations or three other schools from the South Asian continent and now all around the world. So if you imagine a square, Advaita Vedanta being one point of the four points, um, Below Advaita Vedanta on the square would be dualistic religion. So Advaita Vedanta is still within the tree of orthodox Hinduism. It does not deny the existence of God, but it attempts to show a principle higher than that. Um, it attempts to show that the substance out of which the personal or, or God with form is made, that is the same substance that you are made, that everything is made. You know, so the ultimate claim of Advaita Vedanta is not actually an atheistic claim. It's like theism writ large. It's theism on steroids. In fact, uh, it's not monotheism. It's theistic monism, which is uh, it, rather than the idea of there is only one God, it's the idea that only God exists. Only God, exactly, Roxanne. And God as a principle pervades and inheres and makes up everything that you see. So everything that you see is God. In fact, you are that. Um, everyone else is that. Every book on your shelf is that. Um, and you can imagine that if you realize that state, how God intoxicated you would be. You know, because everything that you see, everything that you taste would be an encounter with the divine. Nothing short of that. You wouldn't have to wait for, for Sunday uh, morning church. You wouldn't have to wait for Friday evening temple. You wouldn't have to be uh, among a certain kind of person. You wouldn't be needing to read a certain kind of book. Every book, every person, every place, even the most profane is God. You know, so Advaita Vedanta is a consummation of dualistic religion. Yet dualistic religion often stands apart for various reasons we will explore today. So on one vertice, there's dualistic religion. Then on the other vertice, um, against dualistic religion, you have scientific materialism, which of course is one of the strongest modern opponents of Advaita Vedanta, rejecting awareness as the absolute principle of the universe. So we'll explore that. And then of course, Buddhism, our ancient Purva Paksha and our favorite, uh, you know, in Star Wars, in Episode 3, um, Emperor Palpatine, Chancellor Palpatine says to Anakin, the Jedi and the Sith are similar in almost every which way. So too with the Buddhist and the Advaitins. We are similar in almost every which way, except for key points. Um, and we differ in the biggest way, but we're similar in every other way. So the two of us, when we come together, it makes for a very lively um, conversation over chai. We can talk all night because both Advaita and Buddhist philosophy is very philosophically rigorous. You know, it, it uses logic, it uses the intellect, as well as mystical experience. As, and, and, and the beauty of Advaita versus Buddhism is that neither school can appeal to the scriptures of its own tradition.
You see, if an Advaitin were to debate, like, let's say, another Vedantist within the tradition, you can draw from scripture, you can refer to the Vedas, you can refer to the Upanishads, because we both belong to the same tradition. However, if an Advaitin is to debate a Buddhist, the Buddhists don't share scripture. Uh, the Buddhists don't draw their philosophy from the Vedas or the Upanishads. So that being the case, the Advaitin cannot appeal to some book or some thought that someone else wrote. The Advaitin must appeal to logic and uh, uh, experience here and now. That's what makes these debates so exciting. So we're going to compare today how Advaita Vedanta handles these various different schools. Yeah, <laughs> the left-hand path of Tantra, <laughs> Fabricio rightly identifies as the dark side of the force. Now, I wanted to draw you a picture, but, uh, you know, somehow I didn't do that. So imagine there is this square and there are these points. Now it's a spectrum. In Buddhism, yeah, Fabricio wants me to do a circle, but uh, we will collapse the square into a circle. Don't worry, Fabricio. We'll take the square and make it a single point, and we'll turn the point to the circle, and we look for the center of that circle. Don't worry, we'll do all of that. For now, imagine a square, um, and there's a reason why we've placed each thing where it is. Uh, that's because Buddhism and scientific materialism are, are kind of close together. They kind of share a lot of things in common. Advaita Vedanta and dualistic religion also share some things in common. But remember, these are four points. In between, there are varying other points on the spectrum. So even within Buddhism, you have a vast range of different philosophies, like Yogacara school versus, um, you know, uh, Sarvastivada school versus Madhyamika school. And some schools are closer to Advaita, some schools are closer to dualistic, none of them are close to dualistic religion, but some are close to scientific materialism. So you can see this square um, is a dynamic process. And in this square, you fit in Kashmiri Shaivism or uh, Tantric non-duality and all the different schools. But broadly speaking, these are the four approaches. Yes? So let's start. Um, and before we look at each of the four, uh, three other approaches, let's just sketch the view of Advaita Vedanta. Just for those of you who are new to the game, um, Advaita Vedanta, very simply put, is as follows. A long time ago, the seers of India, known as the Rishis, um, living in about 4000 BCE, liberally or conservatively, first or second millennium uh, BCE, they were interested in finding a principle, an absolute principle, uh, upon which the universe was based. So they were looking for unity. They were looking for commonality. They saw that in nature, things came into existence. There was creation. Things stuck around for a little while. There was a preservation. And things ultimately decayed and disappeared. There was a destruction. So they identify three functions in nature. Um, shristi, creation. Uh, Stithihi, maintenance. And Samhara, destruction. And they attributed to these three natural processes, gods. There was a Brahma for creation, um, Vishnu for preservation, and Shiva for destruction. And uh, at varying times in the tradition, varying gods came to be important. However, the Vedic seers weren't satisfied with that. You know, they went from many gods, many natural forces, to one god, which is one overruling force, to an even subtler idea. What was that god made of? You know, what was the basis for all of it? And they identified... Um, existence, the, the absolute principle known as existence. And they said that was common to all things. So common to all existing things is this principle, existence or pure being, what they call sat. Uh, and this you could probably translate to isness, you know, being, 
existence. Um, and that was a beautiful idea. This unifying force throughout all the cosmos, existence as a principle is to all existing things what clay is to all the pots. If you go to Roxanne's house, and I had the luxury of doing so recently for some Gatorade, which she told me was tea. No, it was delicious tea. It was just blue, which was exciting. But um, Roxanne has all these pots, you know, so many different pinch pots. She makes one a day. Now, the idea is there might be so many different pots, and there are, uh, there is tremendous diversity between each pot. You know, one pot compared to another, it's like snowflakes. They're all so different. And we live in a world with so many different pots. They're different in name, they're different in form, and they're different in function. But ultimately, the Rishi said, yes, butterfly PT, that's what it was. <laughs> ultimately, though, the Rishi said, common to all of this is a substance known as existence itself, the absolute. So you see, the Indian mind was already turned to the idea of unity in diversity. That's the first idea we get. Next, the Rishis were satisfied having discovered this principle in the world. Now they were interested in finding this principle in themselves. So the question, who am I, arose. Am I this body? Uh, clearly this body is different from other bodies. But if there is something common to everything in the universe, then surely it's in me too. And as we continue to investigate, we found that the basis of each and every experience I have in life is awareness itself, is consciousness. Without that consciousness, there wouldn't be an experience of this body or this mind. Um, all the bodies, you know, the stula sharira, physical body, the sukshma sharira, subtle body of thoughts and emotions, and even the very subtle uh, causal body, the karana sharira, all of that come and go in awareness. So common to all my experiences is awareness. And not only that, everything that I experience in this world requires awareness for it to be. In other words, if it wasn't for awareness, nothing could be proved to exist. Do you notice this? You cannot show the objective existence of anything apart from the perceiver. This is an idea we'll explore a little more in a few moments. But for now, suffice to say, very simply, that the Rishis decided that just as there was a common principle to the world, uh, there was also a common principle to my experience, and that was awareness. Now, the ultimate statement. This is the clincher, the moment of the Upanishads. And it is as follows. That existence, that absolute principle that is common to all things in the universe and that consciousness that is common to all of my experiences, they are one and the same thing. Not only that, understanding this brings a tremendous peace uh, and dare we say bliss. Not to be confused as a particular type of joy because you can be in Ananda even in times of grief. It's a word that uh, is not very translatable, uh, except to say the peace that passeth all understanding. But once you realize that the one principle of the universe and the one conscious principle of your universe are one and the same thing, you feel a tremendous sense of ease, joy, and calm. So what we call this is Sat Chit Ananda. Sat meaning conscious uh, existence or being, uh, or maybe even the absolute. Uh, chit being consciousness and ananda being bliss. So we describe this principle as follows. It's sat, it ex it's existence itself. It's chit, it's consciousness itself. And it's ananda. It is the source of all bliss. And that is you. That principle is you. 
So all throughout the Vedas, you get these short, concise sentences that say the same thing. In fact, you can summarize all of South Asian philosophy with three Sanskrit words. Or two Sanskrit words. I can do even better. Two Sanskrit words. Three or two Sanskrit words are all we need to summarize the philosophy. And they are as follows. So um, in the Chandogya Upanishad, sorry, the Aitriya, Aitriya Upanishad associated to the Rig Veda, you get this statement. Um, Pragyanam Brahma. That is, consciousness is the absolute. You see, that's another identity statement. Consciousness is the absolute. Then the next statement from the Chandogya Upanishad associated to the Sama Veda is Tattvam Asi, that thou art. So it's a father talking to his son saying, you are everything. Or rather, everything is and you are that. Uh, the third statement from the Birhad Aranyak Upanishad, my favorite from the Yajur Veda, is uh, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman, I am the Absolute. And the final statement from the Atarva Veda or the Mandukya Upanishad is I am uh, 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 Atma Brahma. You know, I this very self is Brahman. I myself am Brahman. I am the Absolute. Now imagine if you really believed that. Imagine if you knew that you were the source of the universe. If you knew that the world was in you, that you were not in the world. There were no oppressors out there. It was all in you, the same way a dream is in you. Now, while you're in the dream, you feel like you're in the dream. You buy into the reality of the dream. You believe in the dream oppressor. You believe in the dream problems. But when you wake up in the morning after the dream, you feel a tremendous sense of relief because you realize the dream, with all of its characters, seemingly diverse during the dream, but after the dream is one and the same person. It's you. It's all just your consciousness, you see. So if you could realize that, imagine what peace it would bring. So this was the idea. Awareness is absolute. Awareness is fundamental. And by the way, when we say you, we're not talking about you, the personality, or you, the ego. That's merely a bundle of thoughts that appears in the mind. Um, and uh, the awareness is the one that's aware of that, you see. All right. So this in brief is Advaita Vedanta. Very briefly, this is the sketch of our, of our system. So let's investigate some of the um, objections to this system, some of the debate that happens around this idea. Okay, so today we're probably going to do some of the most technical philosophy that we've done together in some time. Um, and that's exciting. You know, it's going to be a rather philosophically rigorous lecture. Should you have any questions at any point during this process, do put them in the chat. You know, or um, feel free to write them down. And at the end of the lecture, we will be here all night to answer any questions you might have. You know, so I wanted to offer that. If it gets dense, if it doesn't quite make sense at any given point, it will. You know, we just have to turn it over a couple of times. Anybody can work through this philosophy and it's premised on very simple intuitions um, of life. So let's start by investigating one of the modern opponents to Advaita Vedanta, and that is the school of scientific materialism. So scientific materialism is not really a modern school. Back in India, we had the exact same school of thought. It was called Charvaka or Lokayata, basically reductive materialism. The idea that only matter and recently now energy exist. You know, so this whole universe, the things that exist 
are of the nature matter or the nature energy. And you know they're interchangeable. So we'll just hyphenate it, matter energy. So scientific materialism says only matter energy exists. This is the only actor on the uh, theater production that is the universe, you know? And somehow, through an inexplicable process, matter and energy gives rise to consciousness. So human consciousness, this experience, is like an afterthought. It's like an epiphenomena. It's um, just a byproduct of matter. It's an emergent property from the interplay of matter and energy. So scientific materialism rejects first and foremost the existence of some creator deity standing outside of nature. They don't like that because it's kind of wishy-washy and it cannot be proved. Um, but they also reject the idea of awareness as the foundational building block of reality because a scientific materialist believes in matter and believes in energy as the foundation. So historically speaking, and we're going to talk about Western scientific materialism now. Historically speaking, West well, I've left you that I materialism. wanted to hear. <laughs> yes. Welcome, Erin. <laughs> Good to have you. So Western scientific materialism actually um, comes from Aristotle, perhaps. And Aristotle was the one of the first few Western philosophers who were interested in identifying a substance. In philosophy, the word substance means um, the essence or the basic building block, like the uh, primordial Lego block, if you will. Now, uh, other words are used like ontological primitive, meaning that thing which exists out of which everything else is built. Um, and Aristotle was one of the first philosophers who was looking for that substance. What is the substance of the universe? And he rejected the idealism of his predecessor, Plato. So remember, Plato was a bit of a mystic. Eh, not a bit of a mystic, he was quite the mystic, right? Plato uh, proposed a worldview in which everything that you see here before you is but a shadow, is but an appearance, um, and it's only uh, a mirage. But there was a real thing, and that real thing was known as the ideal world, an ideal world of forms. This is very close to Advaita Vedanta, which you'll see in a little bit. But anyway, Aristotle, very grounded man, you know, was kind of trying to move away from that mysticism. And he said, let's just go with what we can see and touch. I can touch the tree, no? I can feel the rock, no? Therefore, what is this world made of? It's made of stuff. It's made of trees. It's made of rocks. It's made of people. Um, and he saw that as the ontological primitive. You know, today we would call that naive realism. The idea is what you see is actually there. It's kind of naive, as science itself shows us. But for back then, you know, let's, let's give them some credit. It was a pretty good move. It was a good grounded way of looking at the world. I can see the rock, therefore the rock is real. I can't see the uh, forms, so I don't really believe that they're there. You know, that was Aristotle's approach. So now you get this idea, the world is made up of things like trees and rocks. Eventually, scientists become a little more sophisticated in their study of things. And when you look at a tree or you look at a rock, you realize that it's made up of other stuff known as atoms. Now, of course, the idea of the atom existed with the Greeks, but it finds mainstream acceptance with a scientist in England known as uh, Dalton. So Dalton, he was a bit of a bowling nut, right? He loved to bowl, a lawn bowling. I don't think he was hitting pins or anything, he was a lawn bowler, you know, drinking his tea and biscuits and lawn bowling. And uh, he was looking at the sun and looking at the moon, and he thought, 
And, and this is funny, you know, because the entirety of Western materialism is perhaps based on this one thought. And the thought is this. He looked at the sun and the moon and he thought, if all the biggest things in the world are circular, maybe the smallest things are too. I don't know, just maybe. So what he did was he got a bunch of balls and he got a bunch of smaller balls and he got a bunch of still smaller balls and he found out that it's a good model to explain why salt disappears in water. It's a good model to explain why gas can move through liquids and why liquids can move through solids. And so using these big balls and small balls and smaller balls, Roger Dalton was able to cement in the scientific community the idea of atoms. And it was a great idea because when you use that model, you can explain a lot of things. So you see, already now, the first idea is this. We accept a theory on the basis of its ability to explain stuff. It has to have explanatory power, meaning it has to be able to account for things that occur in the world. It's got to be useful, you know? So Roger Dalton, Roger? No, I think that's the bass player for uh, Queen. No, um, Dalton, Mr. Dalton, I forget his first name, uh, is, the, uh, is the founder of this model. It's a really good model. But look what happened. After Dalton, Ernest Rutherford shows up, and Rutherford, he's trying to figure out what an atom is, right? So he's shooting these alpha particles at a, an aluminum or tin sheet or something. Um, yeah, I would argue that it must have prophetic power. <laughs> exactly. It has to have juice, it has to have spirit force, which we will also investigate today. Now, um, Ernest Rutherford, he's shooting alpha particles at the sheet of, I forget, aluminum or tin or something. You see, I say aluminum like you Americans now. I kind of like that. Aluminum. Sweeter than aluminum, you know. Anyway, he's shooting these alpha particles at the sheet, and to his horror... Uh, gold, yes, thank you, Yude. Gold, yeah, he's shooting it at this sheet, and to his horror, most of the particles are going right through the damn sheet. I mean, if the sheet was solid, if it's made up of atoms, why aren't there deflections? Why isn't he detecting solid matter meeting solid matter? The particles are going right through. Um, and this, of course, will give any materialist nightmares. You're not going to sleep tonight if you really believe the world is made of stuff, but now your experiments are showing you empty space. You know, thank God, one of his lab ex thank God might not be an appropriate phrase here, but uh, thank Newton, one of Rutherford's assistants um, detected a discrepancy in the data. It was purely by accident, but matter was saved. Rutherford found a deflection in the very center. There was... A nucleus. We can sleep. The nucleus contained the matter. Most of the atom was empty space, but the nucleus had what he called, you know, protons or neutrons or that pudding, you know, whatever. Um, but then it gets even spookier. You know, uh, Niels Bohr shows up and he's got his electrons now in an orb. And then it's like the Bohr model gets replaced with the bicycle theory where it's like it's not even orbitals anymore. It's just clouds of probability. Um, Recent quantum mechanics cannot tell you where electrons are. They don't follow these neat lines. They just exist in a region of probability known as an electron cloud. So you see, atoms have gone from a discrete particle to a theoretical probability. Um, yeah, beautiful, Caroline. Exactly. Except now we're pushing further and we're saying that's an outdated idea. 
You see, we thought everything in the universe was dots. We thought it was atoms. But no, we realize atoms were mostly empty space. We thought nucleus was the dot. But no, now we realize nucleuses are mostly quarks and muons. And then there's superstring theory. And essentially, what I'm getting at is, the more we study matter, the less we know what it is. In other words, the more we look at stuff, the more stuff disappears before our very eyes. You see? So um, Galen Strawson, the philosopher, calls this the hard problem of matter. Somewhat jokingly, you know, uh, because soon I'll tell you about the hard problem of consciousness, which is one of the ultimate dead ends of neuroscience. But for now, it's enough to say that matter is becoming increasingly and increasingly eerie to us. We don't know what it is. Uh, never mind dark matter or dark energy or all of those other theoretical improbabilities. Um, but for now, it's enough to say matter is quite mysterious. So... Scientific materialism is the belief or the view that matter exists. Whatever it is, we don't know what it is, we know what it does, and we're going to put our faith in that. And from matter, you get consciousness. So how does this happen? Well, you get bodies, and after a period of evolution, bodies develop nervous systems that are more and more complex until finally you get a brain. And in the case of human beings, our evolutionary programming has given us, or gifted, I don't think they would even say gifted, but produced in us a brain capable of consciousness. So you see, atoms, or matter, gives rise to this consciousness. But the drawback here is... No one is yet able to explain how. So electrical signals and electrical firing doesn't yet describe a thought or an emotion. You see, a synaptic firing is not a sufficient explanation for your hopes and dreams and desires. It cannot really explain why it is you see the world like this. Um, yes, beautiful, Heidi. Cool, I'm happy you made it. Welcome, Heidi. Yes, uh, we're talking exactly about what we discussed in our little uh, conversation the other day. So, now, let's just pretend that matter exists. If you really believe in matter, then you believe consciousness depends on the brain. If you believe that, um, death is a very real problem for you. Because when the body dies, the brain dies, and you die. You know, because you, as a conscious entity, depend on the brain, see? So with this school of thought, one of the major drawbacks is a fear of death, is a crippling fear of death um, that everybody encounters as they approach it. Deny it as they, as they might try to deny it, but as you approach death, um, there might be a tremendous trepidation in you, a feeling of, uh, of this will be my end, you know, which is the natural consequence of this kind of philosophy. All right. Now... Uh, this scientific materialism attempts to study consciousness, but it does so in a reductionist way. It tries to study consciousness via the brain. So it looks at the brain and tries to make um, conclusions about electrical and chemical processes in the brain. But thus far, those conclusions cannot yet explain the phenomena of consciousness. So in uh, modern neuroscience, we call this the hard problem of consciousness. And many of the cutting-edge philosophers in the field of philosophy of mind, such as Thomas Nagel and, um, you know, um, David Chalmers and what have you, all these, um, you know, kind of modern philosophers are identifying more and more that um, the hard problem of matter is the main stumbling block in Western neuroscience. It's the dead end of neuroscience, you know. So what do we do about that? 
Okay, scientific materialism offers a solution. It's called promissory materialism. Promissory materialism is the idea that we don't have the answer today, but give us 50 years and we'll have one for you then. And this is not so implausible, you know? A hundred years ago, um, something like life, for instance, uh, the miracle of life was completely unknown, completely mysterious. But a hundred years after the fact, we can now describe life with a lot of sophistication. So can't we do the same with consciousness? The same way things that were mysterious in the past, like electricity or life, are now perfectly lucid to science. Won't a consciousness eventually become lucid to science? You know? All right. So this is the pushback of scientific materialism. We don't need awareness as the foundation of, of, of the universe because we have matter. Matter alone is sufficient to explain various things. Even though we can't quite explain through matter consciousness, eventually we will be able to. We'll just keep working at it. Somebody's going to invent some kind of sophisticated MRI eventually, right? Okay. So this is the view of scientific materialism. Now, here's why scientific materialism is really good. So I'm going to try to motivate this way of being for a few moments. Welcome, Zethi. Scientific materialism is really good. Um, and someone wants a Bashya. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> Don't worry. Shankara is my favorite. And we do a lot of Shankara Bashas on all the, the 10 Upanishads and Gita. Not, not today, but for your sake, I will read you some uh, Nirvana Shatakam, okay? We'll do some Nirvana Shatakam. Not the Gita, unfortunately. It's not a Gita class. Uh, and I only have two hours, so, you know, we've got a lot to do. So, um, okay. So here, here we have scientific materialism. Here's why it's good. Scientific materialism rejects dogma. It says, don't believe things just because some authority tells you that that's the way it is. Unfortunately, we treat science as dogma. You know, so we're ready to believe any article we see on the internet with scientific words. We're ready to believe anything scientists tell us. We have a blind faith in the Church of Science, the same way science was advocating against the Catholic Church, was advocating against the tyranny of dogma. You know, so the value of science, the age of enlightenment, as they called it, is finding things out for yourself. Science is a method of philosophy. It's a method of inquiry that says, I am going to reject all dogma and I'm going to seek truth out for myself through the validity of my own experience. Science is all about conducting experiments that are observable, testable, repeatable, and most importantly, communicable. So in that way, science rejects mysticism because perhaps mysticism is too idiosyncratic. Your personal vision of God um, doesn't help everyone else. It cannot translate into something someone else can use, you know? So science uses as its founding principle empiricism, that is interacting with your own experience of life. It uses as its founding principle peer review, debate, discussion, discourse, and it's all about um, truth. It's a dogged pursuance of truth. These are the values of science. It can create in you a kind of independence that's very needed in Advaita Vedanta. So you see, in Hindu non-duality, we do not appeal to scripture um, all the time. Most of the time, we're making arguments based on personal experience. So unless you have a, a willingness to trust empirical data, um, non-duality won't really work, you see. If you're more inclined to just believe things because people said them, uh, non-duality doesn't work. 
Because non-duality depends on you interacting with your empirical, ex uh, empirical experience is a redundant phrase, with your here and now experience of life. You know, so that's the value of science. Not just that, there's a certain cockiness in it that you need to have as an Advaitin. The cockiness that says, I'm going to find out for myself. F off. You know, it's a kind of cockiness that says, I, I can and will find out for myself. I don't need to accept your obfuscation. I'm going to look in my microscopes and I'm going to see for myself. That's the benefit um, of the scientific approach. All right. So here are the drawbacks. And by drawbacks, I don't mean drawbacks to science. I mean drawbacks to science studying consciousness. You see, that's the nuance. Advaita Vedanta has no problem with science whatsoever. In fact, it, uh, um, it, it loves science for its ability to describe Maya. So for Advaitins in the room, you know, Maya, science is the science of Maya. It's the science of the objective world. And it's really good at doing that. It's really good at explaining objective things in terms of other objective things. It has a remarkable control of the world of phenomena, of the world of objective experience. So much so that we've created these cities where the lights are on all the time and the water is clean and all of that's good. All of that's good. Now, the problem happens when science tries to study consciousness because now you have an objective-oriented practice attempting to study the subjective experience still in objective terms. You see? So you cannot turn the subject into an object. In other words, if you think the brain is the mind, you have committed what in Vedanta we call a category mistake. It, you can even Google a category mistake. It's made its way into the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. But a category mistake is something like this. Two is green. You know, it's a category mistake because two is a number. It's a quantity. Green is an adjective. It's a color. It's a quality. So when you say a statement, two is green, you've committed a category mistake because you've described one thing in terms of a different category that doesn't align nicely. So if you try to describe the subject in terms of the object, you've made a category mistake. You know, you cannot objectively explain the subject. So that's the first drawback. So this is why promissory materialism will fail. If materialism says, give me 50 years, give me 100 years, I will eventually crack the code of consciousness. Our response to that is, no, you won't. Because from the very outset, you've committed a category error. You're going about it objectively, but the very nature of consciousness is that it's the subject of the experience, not the object of the experience. You see? That's the first point to make. Science commits a category error. The second thing is that science ad uh, assumes, um, and, and Alex, that's, that's exactly right. Science assumes that there is an objective world independent of the perceiver. But this cannot be shown to be true. Notice, you can never prove the objective existence of anything apart from the one who is perceiving it. You know. Some of you might say this is kind of crazy. Of course I can, Nish. I'll just put a video camera on here in the room. We'll all leave the room and then we'll all come back and I'll show you, ta-da, the video camera. It showed the room was here. How can you say that uh, existence depends on perception? How can you make this grand phenomenalist claim, uh, phenomenological claim, uh, 
phenomenalist, sorry, phen- phenomenalist claim when I clearly have data that shows you the room existed without any perceivers. But you see what you've done? Your data about the room is also in perception. You know, can you appreciate this point? All of our data about the objective world is a subjective phenomena. There's no science without scientists. In other words, there's no objects of experience without subjects, the experiencers. So without anyone there to perceive it, you cannot prove it to exist. That means matter does not exist objectively. And if it cannot be shown to exist objectively, for you to suggest that matter precedes consciousness is nothing better than superstition or dogma. You cannot prove matter exists apart from the subject, so how can you say matter is the cause and consciousness is the effect? How can there be a cause um, producing an effect which cannot be shown to exist in and of itself? You see, it's just as right to say the effect produces the cause in this case, because since every objective experience is accompanied by the subject, maybe the subject causes the object. And that's kind of the claim of Advaita Vedanta, as we will soon see. Now, there are some cutting edge uh, uh, kind of discoveries in science. One is the uh, wave particle phenomena, right, with the double slit experiment, where the photon exhibited properties of both a particle and a wave. We're not really going to get into that experiment today, um, but it's the double slit experiment, um, and it's a really exciting discovery in science that basically talks about the role of the observer in observation. It's called the observer effect. So it seems like the very act of observing the data changes the data. This is a, is a death blow to the method of science when it comes to studying the subject. The death blow is there is no objective universe. You know. Max Planck called it the participatory universe. It's, and, and this is an idea that I think would be very at home with all you new agers and your manifesting and all that. <laughs> Right? You create the world, or so to speak. So this is Max Planck's view. And there are other things like Heisenberg uncertainty principle or Schrodinger's cat. All of these things that talk about the observer as being integral to the observation. So in cutting edge quantum mechanics, you're starting to hear echoes of Advaita. Echoes of non-duality. In fact, so much so that they have a conference here in LA every year or so. I, they move around, but it's often here. It's called SAND, which means science and non-duality. Their website is quite cool. They do very nice conferences. So um, thus far, here's what you have. Non-duality does not reject science as long as it's an objective study of objective phenomenon. Of course you could explain life because you explained it in objective terms with molecular biology and, and, and through an appeal to cells and objective things. But it's difficult to explain the subject in said terms. That would be a category mistake. And it's a dogma or superstition to suppose that matter exists independently of the observer because that cannot be shown to be true. And of course, the more you study matter, the more it runs away from you. So these are all the drawbacks to the scientific approach. I'll add one more, um, and this is a little bit of a cheeky one. Advaita definitely doesn't make this claim, uh, but this is on the level of utility. So we say science is good because it's useful, right? But how useful is it really? Have you been to Starbucks? Is this the epitome of civilization? Is this what science was for? 
to create Starbucks so people could suffer acutely when they didn't get the right sugar content in their coffee? It seems like people suffer more in Starbucks than they do in the rural train stations of India. Honestly, in my time in India, when I meet people in train stations, life is so abjectly horrible uh, on scientific terms. You know, it's so backward according to Western civilization. There's no water. Um, the lights go off every now and then. You know, um, nothing works. The roads are broken. The trains are either three. They'll be there on time or they'll be there on time tomorrow. They'll be three hours late or three minutes early. There's no way to predict when the train is going to arrive. Everything's kind of backward according to science. Yet, um, people in rural India seem quite happy. It's not something, you know, I'm, I'm not going to just make this claim. Don't believe me. Go out there. Go out to Uttar Pradesh and, and go and wander around and you'll see the people are so loving and, and so happy. It's a little different in Calcutta, of course, and, 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 and uh, Bombay and, and Mumbai and Delhi and all that. It's a little more hectic there and suffering is a little more acute in those cities. But when you go into the provincial parts of India, you see a tremendous joy. Whereas if you go to the Starbucks at LAX, you see more human suffering than you will see in five days on uh, a train in India, you know? Um, and it seems like for all of our luxury, for all of this, the, 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 the fancy things in the Tower of Babylon, it hasn't yet brought us lasting fulfillment or joy. You know, we have kept our cities bright, but is that only because we fear the dark? You know, are we only keeping our cities bright because of a fundamental fear of darkness and an escapist mentality not to want to deal with that darkness? Um, we flip out when COVID hits us. But this is the reality of the world. You know, there's malaria and there's dengue fever and, and there's uh, uh, Zika virus. And, and the world is all about pandemic and plague. Uh, but you see how brittle we are in our cities. The moment something like this happens, oh, there's massive depression. You know, it's almost like we just cannot handle life because the preciousness created by all of this luxury. You see? Um, so Anthony says luxury produces hedonistic adaptation, making people miserable more efficiently. Yeah. So it seems like that, right? It seems like, um, all the logical arguments aside on a practical level for all of this luxury, it has not brought with it a corresponding sanctity of life. It's not actually made life meaningful, though it has increased survival. Death rates, mortality rates, infant mortality rates, all of that have gone down, but depression rates, crime, all of that is on the rise. So it would seem like psychological well-being is not guaranteed by an objective study of the world. You see. Uh, and uh, Siddhama, she made a funny joke. She said, in India, the trains don't work, but people are happy. No, she just, the lights are broken, but the hearts are okay. Whereas in America, the lights work, but the hearts don't. <laughs> Some kind of funny joke. But the idea is that um, the, ob the mastery of the objective world does not bring with it the mastery of the subjective world. So you cannot, through the pursuit of objective material science, arrive at subjective personal goods, such as well-being and happiness. And in the field of psychology, that's more and more becoming the case as long as we apply our behavioral models, as long as we apply our objective models. We, uh, for a moment in the West, had a bit of hope with William James. You know, he suggested an approach to psychology called introspectionism, which is studying the mind from the inside out, which is, of course, the view that Advaita and Buddhism takes. Um, but unless we do that, 
unless we study the subject as the subject, if we continue to study the subject in an objective way, we're always going to be frustrated. You know, the best we can do is impress a Tinder date, as often we say. Best we can do is spout some quantum mechanics and mansplain some scientific concept uh, in order to get some. And even then, if you manage to do so, they will run away. But even if you do so, you'll be lying in bed after all of that, looking at the ceiling, wondering what life is for. You know? <laughs> uh, Roxanne says, after dad read William James, he was fine. Yeah, William James, beautiful. As, as William himself says, uh, our waking state of consciousness is but one flavor of consciousness. And parted from it by the flimsiest of veils is a variety of other modes of being. How beautiful. And as uh, Hamlet says in Shakespeare, um, there is more to heaven and earth than is spoken of in your philosophy books, Horatio. Uh, those probably were books on natural philosophy. Okay, so that's another objection, that the objective world doesn't actually make us happy. But one more objection, and that is the true scientists have been mystics. Look at Tesla, the great wizard Tesla. Look at Newton. What a God-intoxicated man. You know, it's almost as if everyone at the college physics department stopped reading Principia Mathematica halfway through. They missed out all the parts on God that make up most of that text, right? So how can an atheist tout Newton when Newton himself was a deeply religious man? You know, Einstein published that paper, Science and Religion, and, and with it, the famous quote, science without religion is blind and religion without science is impotent or something like that. He was trying to bridge the two worlds. He himself was a panpsychist or a pantheist or something of that kind. And he was very into Spinoza, who was a non-dualist. Yeah, Heisenberg, Schrodinger, uh, and, and Shannon says, I think that there was hope again with the humanistic turn of psychology. Um, <laughs> neuroseduction, I like that. Neuroscience came about and so too came neuroseduction. I love it. So, um, Spinoza's God. Yes, exactly. So hopefully now we've done enough for scientific materialism. Hopefully now you can see that there are some tremendous goods that you get from this view, such as independence and scientific thinking and, and rational approaches to the world. But the drawbacks are, you know, as we described, um, the inability to prove the existence of matter separate from the subject, um, the hard problem of matter, the hard problem of consciousness, the inability to get subjective fulfillment through objective mastery, and finally, the failure to realize that our best scientists have been mystics. <laughs> they called Newton the last magician, and they called Tesla the magician. Oh, no, they called Newton, yeah, the last magician, I think, Sir Isaac Newton. All right. Um, and all those, like, Gal uh, what is it, Mendel? Remember Mendel, Gregor Mendel? He was a monk! <laughs> It's kind of funny when we think about that. All right. That does it for scientific materialism. Yeah, Bohm is really great. You can His work is really, really excellent. And, you know, um, you have Greg Braden, who I know, I know, in the scientific community is a little bit, uh, some people question his findings. But Greg Braden is a good resource for um, those of you making the transition from the atheistic materialistic camp to Buddhism and non-duality. We say science is a gateway drug to Buddhism and Buddhism is a gateway drug to non-duality. And you know what's funny? Non-duality is a gateway drug to religion. 
to dualistic religion. Because once you realize that everything is God, you realize that everything is worship worthy, all you want to do is pray. So a person might start with an indoctrinated church and, 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 you know, like, I hate religion and God, that word is synonymous with abuse and I was an altar boy and it was all awful. And then scientific materialism saves them from that. It shows them a new way of interacting with the world. But then Buddhism saves them from the dearth of meaning in scientific materialism. And then maybe Advaita Vedanta, if they don't consummate their, um, what do you call it? Their third, usually it's their third Vipassana retreat, I've noticed. Once they've done the third Vipassana retreat, that's when they become a little more open to non-duality because Ashtanga Marga doesn't seem to be doing it for more than the retreat. So then they'll come to non-duality and play with that for a while and then they'll realize it's all in here and then they'll want to do asana and bhakti yoga and eventually we all end up the same place, drunk in love with God. Except, you know, we're back to where we started, completely changed. It's the hero's journey, no? We have to make a meme. Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, but with all these schools of philosophy, you know? Someone get on it. <laughs> so, um, oh, Abby, welcome. I missed you. So nice to have you back, Abby. Welcome back. you too. I'm glad to be back. Welcome, welcome. I'm happy you're here for this one too, because Abby is part of the, you know, East Coast circle of intellectuals. And a mm -hmm. lot of the ideas we're talking about today were first introduced in the late 19th century by none other than Swami Vivekananda to atheists in the New England circles, you know. So he was lecturing all over Connecticut and New York and all that. All right. So we're done with scientific materialism. When it comes to comparing matter as the cause of consciousness or consciousness as the cause for matter, err on the side of the latter because the arguments are stronger there, as we will see soon. So now, having dealt with scientific materialism, let's turn to its opponent, which is dualistic religion. So scientific materialism is a move away from dualistic religion, and it's often at odds with the dualistic religion. So dualistic religion, like Islam, Christianity, uh, Judaism, those three faiths draw a lot of their philosophy from Zoroastrianism. Um, and Zoroastrianism was the world's first dualistic religion to propose the idea that there was one um, personal God or one principle of good in the world called God. The Zoroastrians called it Ahura Mazda, meaning Lord of Light or Lord of Wisdom. It's the one force, it's the one good, and it's the highest order of existence and is in itself an intelligent being. It is a being with will, it is a being with intelligence, and most importantly for dualistic religion, it is an omnibenevolent being. It's a being who is not only all-powerful, but also all-good. That's the fundamental uh, monotheistic idea of God. And from Zoroastrianism, it transfers on to, you know, um, later conceptions in Judaism and then Christianity and then Islam. Now, um, in Hinduism, it's called the um, Dvaita schools, you know, the idea that God does exist. Now, in this school, here's the idea. Apart from this world, there was predating this world, before this world, outside of time, outside of space, outside of causality, there is a being. It is an intelligent being with a will, and that being, through an act of will and through an act of love, created this world. Now, different schools of dualistic religion give different reasons for the creation of this world. One of my favorite is the Christian mystic idea from the Desert Fathers of the Philokalia. Um, you know, some 30 or so writers in the Philokalia. Some of them are like Evagrius and uh, all those philosophers. Anyway, they suggest that there was in the beginning God and God did one act of creation. That act of creation was to create uh, beings of pure light that delighted 
haha, <laughs> delight, delighted in contemplating God. And that was it. It was just God and angels, you know, and, and everyone was happy and they were singing. They were literally singing Kumbaya. Like they were all in a very high vibration of pure contemplation and bliss, pure joy. However, something happened. Now, um, if you'd like kind of maybe a, a modern or contemporary literary depiction of this process, look no further than the Silmarillion, right? The Silmarillion by uh, J.R. Tolkien. I think in the opening of Silmarillion, uh, Token describes this exact process. During the song, yeah, I know Angela was sharing the cool seraphim. I'm really happy that we were having that discussion about angelology. Now, angelology is very important for the mystical parts of this tradition. You know, in, interestingly enough, I was I hang out at Orthodox churches a lot. I have a deep love for the uh, you know the the desert traditions, or we call Heskiism, You know, and I was just at um, the Archangel Michael in Culver City, and I was there, and a boy came in. He must have been about. 15 or 16, very intense eyes. And he came in and he was asking for idols and icons of very niche saints. You know, it's very beautiful. The Orthodox approach to Christianity is very like the Hindu approach, which is to find a manifestation of God that is appealing to you on a formal level in order to approach the formless God. Anyway, that's an aside. So in the um, Hesychiatic traditions of the desert, you have God and you have these angels. But Somewhere along the way, there was a moral failure. Not a metaphysical failure, mind you, a moral failure. Um, Some of these angels decided to move away from God. It's not clear why, you know, but they decided to move away from God. Saint Anselm calls it the malum. They willed the malum. And malum in Latin just means that which one should not will. (laughs) Doesn't really explain what the malum is. Some philosophers have said, oh, they wanted to be like God or they wanted to possess beauty or uh, semantics. But really, they they willed something that they ought not will. And as a result, they fell away from God. So this is Lucy and his gang, right? And he fell away from God um, and took with him a bunch of other people too. So he managed to convince a bunch of dudes and they all went down um, and there was a kind of spectrum now. Those that were close to God, Mikael and his cohort, and those that were further from God and everyone in between. So through an act of love, God creates the world to solve for the fall, you see? So the fall happened. It wasn't God's fault. The fall happened because of the beings that God created and the world was created as God's grace to the fallen. So the world is here as a teaching, as a training ground. Um, And in it, you're meant to make your way back to God through fasting, prayer, contemplation, and good works. Okay, so that's dualistic religion. Dualistic religion is really powerful because it's so sweet and so natural. I'm not going to wax lyrical to you today because I already did that two weeks ago and we had our bhakti lecture, right? Um, And we we talked about how in love we all are with, with God there. Um, so in that bhakti lecture, we gushed and we gushed. Part of the reason we're doing this more philosophical, um, rigorous lecture is because I'm, the pendulum is swinging a bit from last week's bhakti. My, my jnana has been a little (laughs) neglected. So (laughs) yeah, Douglas, good works, good looks. What's the difference? According to the Calvinist, if you look good and you're wealthy, God loves you. (laughs) Calvinism, you know, the Protestant idea of wealth as an indication of God's favor. Even Job was wealthy in the end. Okay, never mind. Well, that's an aside. So the, the beauty of dualistic religion, here's the beauty, is it's, it's so 
Calvin Klein, the ultimate Calvinist. <laughs> you lot are wild. Now, the beauty of dualistic religion is that it's so sweet and so natural. Do you notice, all of us, um, before, you know, um, anything, like our first intuitions about the world involve the existence of a creator deity, you know? I, we, <laughs> so I have a class with some of these kids, you know, very young kids from fifth grade up to eighth grade. And our favorite thing to do is uh, Socrates' Phaedro, you know, where you just do Socratic sessions with children to figure out what their intuitions about the world are. And uh, as Fabricio pointed out beautifully, their intuitions are almost always dualistic. They know deep down inside that there is a deity out there, a creator deity who is good. And one of my favorite answers, I was talking to my, my uh, nephew um, and I asked him, um, why did God create the world? And he said so sweetly, a boy of 10, he said, because God loves joy and he wanted to see people happy. And I was like, why is it a he though? And he was like, oh no, it could be a she. Uh, in fact, I think it's an it. Isn't that beautiful? This is so profound, so deep, um, but it cannot be ignored. A child's first intuition about the world, and in fact, all of our intuition, is that there exists a benevolent force in the world known as God who creates structures and organizes the world. Uh, creates the world, shristi, uh, preserves the world, sitihi, and destroys the world. The Islamic conceptions are among my favorite. So in the Quran, King David asks, no, one of the hadiths, a hadith, King David asks, um, Allah, he asks, why did you create us? Allah, you didn't need us. Why did you create us? And Allah responds, because I am a hidden treasure and I desire to be known. The idea that God loves the soul as much as the soul loves God, it's actually almost an Egyptian idea. The idea that the gods need people as much as people need the gods. We're in this kind of, yeah, gods love stories. Gods wanted to be known. God wanted to be known. So the idea is, God has this desire. Um, and the Kashmiri Shaivites have my favorite depiction of this uh, creation story. Um, and the depiction is, is, is this. This is how they describe it. Now remember, Kashmiri Shaivites are non-dualist, mind you. But they're very devotional. So here's what they said. In the beginning, there was God. Ein Sof Auer. Limitless white light. Just awareness. Um, God eventually got bored. God wanted to play. Can you imagine what a drag it must be to be God? for aeons and aeons and aeons, all by yourself, in a state of perpetual bliss and light, eventually even that becomes a drag. So God desired to play. God is very playful, you know, as you will see with Krishna. God desired to play, but God had no friend. God had no playmate, you know. So God creates uh, the world, enters the world, and pretends not to be God. So now, God is God, right? So God's really good at what God does. So God overdid it. God was so good at pretending not to be God that she went too far and she actually thinks she's not God. So here we all are, God pretending not to be God. <laughs> Fortunately, because she knew this would happen, um, she left clues along the way. And what's the clue? Suffering. In, in Kashmir Shaivism, suffering is the feedback mechanism of God's good earth to tell us we are asleep. We're playing pretend. If you suffer, it's because you're not aligned to what's real. When suffering ends, it's because you're aligned to what is. You're God. <laughs> you know? Um, and so God created the matrix out of joy, out of fun. And uh, helpfully, through the grace of God, there is suffering to bring you back to the path. And there is also mercy and beneficence. 
So in the matrix, there are sages, there are glitches, there are enlightened beings who are there to kind of guide you home. They are a function of the matrix, but they're there for you to go home to yourself. You see, glitches in the matrix, if you will. Uh, maybe we call them angels, right? Angels, like Jibril, Archangel Jibril or Gabriel, who appeared to the Prophet Muhammad and taught him his first few surahs. Hmm? So, uh, in dualistic religion, you have God. Now, like I said, the benefit of this school of thought is it comes so naturally. It's so sweet. It's so beautiful. It addresses the fundamental emotional need for a protector. And you can relate to God any way that's befitting to you. This is actually one of the contributions of Hindu dualism, the idea that God doesn't have to be a father. Like, if you have that desire in you to connect with God as the father, that's great. But not everybody like has a good relationship with dad. Some people need mom. Some people relate to God as the mother. Hence, you have the Mother Mary tradition or the Devi worship traditions of Shakti, Kali, all of that. Um, but sometimes maybe it's not even mother. Maybe you yourself are a mother or a father and your favorite relationship is to a child. So you get baby Jesus or baby Krishna baby Gopala, you know, you can relate to God as a child. What about God as a friend? So in the Sufi traditions, God is usually called the friend, capital F, you know, but what about God as a lover? I mean, you have romantic desires, don't you? Turn that to God. God becomes the beloved, you know, um, Krishna Radha, all that kind of thing, Shiva Shakti. So the beauty of dualistic religion is it already uh, it's, it's prerequisite is something you already have. You know, remember we talked about jnana. There's a lot of prerequisites. Not many people can profitably study jnana yoga or Advaita Vedanta, but everybody can practice dualistic religion. It comes so naturally. It comes so sweetly. So that's the, the benefit. And here's the thing. Dualistic religion, if practiced properly, is all you need to realize true fulfillment in the world. You know, and that's because through the practice of dualistic religion, you get all the attributes that you get from Advaita Vedanta in a much sweeter, much more natural way. That is, you get perfect service and servanthood. You get perfect peace uh, because you no longer see yourself as all important. You've deprioritized the ego and the mind. And every time you pray, it's meditation. So when you do the puja, uh, what you're doing is you're bringing your mind to a single point, And that's the ultimate yoga, you see? So... When you study the Christian mystics, when they're talking about prayer, often what they're not talking about is making bargains with God. And they say it's, it's, it's very natural for you to come to church and be like, give me a promotion or, or smite my enemies. You know, and some of that language is there in the Bible too. It's very natural. But the Christian mystics are saying, no, that's not what prayer is. Remember, Moses had to take off his sandals before he could speak to the burning bush. The idea there is, if you are to pray, you must put aside your ego. You must put aside your petty personal concerns and be able to hold the vision of God uninterruptedly. Christians, Islamic uh, uh, mystics, uh, Jewish mystics, they're all interested in something that they call zikr in the Islamic tradition, remembrance, or uninterrupted or ceaseless prayer. So if you're interested in this, I highly recommend Way of a Pilgrim. It's an anonymous Russian author who compiled this beautiful text on Christian mysticism. It's about uninterrupted prayer, which, mind you, is meditation. So dualistic religion is perhaps one of the best, easiest approaches, but here are the drawbacks. And there are three major drawbacks. Oh, very welcome. Um, no, that we, ha, interesting. We will talk about that in a little bit, Brie. This is why this discussion is important, because it will contextualize Advaita Vedanta for you. 
Um, so to, to talk about Hinduism a little bit, the main Hindu deities are Vishnu and Shiva. Like the worship of Brahma doesn't really happen, but Brahma is one of the three main gods in Hinduism. They come from the Puranas or uh, uh, folk texts of, of religion. And uh, the stories of Shiva are contained all across the Puranas. The stories of Vishnu in his incarnations is Rama and Krishna can be read in the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. Um, and, and basically... Hindus are divided along two lines, sadly. I'm a Shaiva. I grew up a Shaiva, a worshipper of Shiva. We fast on Mondays. Um, we practice in graveyards. We practice yoga during the new moon. We're weirdos and outsiders, right? We, we wear our caste marks horizontally. We even paint our houses horizontally, you know? Um, we worship Shiva and Kali, and we're more into Tantra and yoga. Uh, we're more into non-duality. Um, these are Shaiva paths, generally speaking. Now, the worshippers of Vishnu, they are known as Vaishnavas, and they are more into kirtan, singing, they, they celebrate full moons, they fast on Thursdays, they wear vertical marks, and they even paint their house vertically. It's the same thing, but for some reason, a lot of disagreement has happened between the two sects, you know, um, and a lot of um, quarrel between the two main sects, the Vaishnavas and the Shaivas. So that's Hinduism as a dualistic religion. So dualistic Shaivas worship, yeah, they're both beautiful in different ways. Um, granted, when, when we do go to the temple, I do go to the Vishnu temple, but you'll see me in the Shaiva temple like all day. You know, I'm just there in front of the Shiva because that's what I love. Shiva appeals to me. That crazy, eccentric outsider god who walks around naked and sky-clad, smeared with ashes, dead to the world because he's awakened to some higher reality. Um, I do sense in me a little bit of an aversion to the world-affirmingness of the uh, Vaishnava schools, you know, of like just eat and drink and, and be in the world and, and kind of thing. It's it's cool. It's its own thing. It's its own tradition, you know? But they are two separate streams of thought with two different flavors that are ultimately one and the same thing, right? So it's just the relationship to a deity. Yeah, Fabricio. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so the Vaishnavas and the Shaivas, they worship Vishnu, they worship Shiva. Vaishnavas worship Krishna or, or Rama. Shaivas worship... Shiva and his many forms, his Nataraja, which is our patron deity, all of that. But that's dualistic Hinduism, you see? So, Bray, that's just the assets. Dualistic Hinduism. It's Hinduism that says there is a deity. That deity created, preserves, and destroys the world. And I can worship the deity and win favor with that deity. Okay. So, in the interest of time, let's just go to the drawbacks of this system. There are three main drawbacks. The first is the problem of evil. You know? If there exists a force of good known as God. And if you say God is omnibenevolent, meaning all good, and if you say that this God is omnipotent, meaning all powerful, why then is there evil in the world? Why do people suffer? Why do innocent people die all the time? How can we explain this? The very fact that there is evil, and nobody can deny this, nobody can deny that innocent people die all the time, nobody can deny that there's horrible natural disasters that are not even man-made, that kill lots of innocent people, no one can deny evil in the world, right? So, that must mean God is either A, not all good, or not all powerful. It is possible that God is all good, but impotent, unable to solve for the evil in the world. Or it could be the case that God is all-powerful, just not all-good, you know? Um, so those are the only two kind of 
ways you could go about it. Um, and this kind of problem has confounded uh, theologians throughout history. Ever since um, the Greek philosopher, you know, that early hedonist, Euripides, ever since him, uh, ever since Euripides, the problem of evil has really uh, exerted a strong force against um, theological schools. Now, there are some responses, and I, I, I do want to get into them, but not in depth. And uh, I, I might point you to my one contribution to academia, my one brief paper out there on exactly this problem called the problem of evil, in which I defend theology against the atheistic attack of the problem of evil. Um, I'm not really going to go into it, but very briefly, here's the idea. Theists or theologians usually say evil exists in the world because it's necessary for good. So God ultimately wants to have good in the world, and you can only have benevolence, which is a second-order good, if there are first-order evils, such as disease and poverty and sickness, you know? But the problem with that is, if benevolence is a second-order good, you also have to deal with malevolence, a second-order evil, which is the perpetuation of evil in the world. So you can't take this approach of saying some bad is necessary for some good, because that approach necessitates the opposite which is malevolence. You know, how could God be okay with that? So ultimately, the theist says this, free will. The reason there's evil in the world is because God wanted to guarantee as the ultimate good, free will. And free will necessitates some level of mistake, some level of evil. Um, and that's not on God. That's on the people, you know. And this is the approach that Hindu duality takes. Hindu duality attributes it to karma. God created the world on a canvas. And if you want to make art, this is a tantric Kashmiri Shaivite idea, but if you want to make art, you can't paint on an infinite canvas, right? You can't make music without a time signature. Some people do. They call it avant-garde noise improvisation, and it sucks. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> but you know, if you don't have a time signature, even if it's 7-8, if you don't have a time signature, if you don't have parameters for your painting, it's hard to make art. So the idea is, in the theory of creation, God is working with certain parameters, and they are threefold, time, space, and causality. This is also why you can't ask how old is God, where is God, and who caused God, because the universe is bound by time, space, and causality. God, as something outside of the universe, cannot be um, dealt with in terms of time, space, and causality. So again, you're seeing category error. Do you see how helpful category error is as a philosophical linguistic idea? Um, and it's uh, one of our main tools in Vedanta to help articulate Advaita Vedanta. All right. So God is outside all of these things, meaning when you incarnate in the world, you're subject to time, space, and causality. Causality being karma, mind you. And every action has a necessary um, reaction. So karma is responsible for your suffering, not God. That's what dualistic Hinduism says. Um, dualistic Christianity, Islam, and uh, Christianity and Judaism says, uh, note to boss, I can't make it to work tomorrow because time, space, causality. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because of God's constraints. <laughs> yeah, so dualistic religion will say, for free will, therefore, evil exists in the world. But you, you still feel the force of the problem of evil. Because the question is, well... Couldn't you have free will, but still create people to be mostly good anyway? You know, like create people with the proclivity for good and give them free will. And through their free will, they'll exercise goodness, no? So why couldn't God have created a kind of person who wouldn't will evil? 
You know, and then there's the question of, would that be tampering with free will? What are God's limits? I mean, if God can't intervene because of these, these rules of time-space causality, then you've, you've lost omnipotence. You know, another very interesting approach in dualistic Hinduism is the Kali approach, which is to say, far with this idea of God being omnibenevolent. Why should God conform to your idea of what's good? You're a human after all. Why constrain God to your ideas of morality? Instead, let's create a symbol for the ecstatic, absolutely wild, incomprehensible power known as God, and we'll call it Kali. She wears a garland of human heads and a skirt of human hands. She drinks from a bowl of blood. She represents pure sexuality of creation, the ecstatic, uh, energetic aspect of creation. And she's so wild and incomprehensible that you might as well give up trying to understand it. So Kali worship, Shakti worship, maintains omnipotence, without necessarily needing omnibenevolence. It's like you can't have your cake and eat it too. So yeah, there are many approaches to the problem of evil, um, but I want to give you the Advaitic problem with dualistic religion, the more philosophically technical problem. Uh, yeah, the one in the story who destroyed the temple, yes. Um, yes, and Heidi, that is the... Actually, it's, it's, it's almost the Advaitic conception, which we're getting to in a little bit. And remember, I'm kind of walking up the ladder. I'm walking from what I consider to be the most philosophically um, barren to what is more philosophically, I think, satisfactory. Of course, I am imposing a value judgment that is completely along the lines of my own biases as an Advaitin. So disclaimer there. <laughs> but I hope that the light of reason can show why Advaita has solutions that are very unique and very profound when we consider the problem of evil and all of that. Okay, so let's move on. Um, the problem of evil, the problem of free will, these are some problems with dualistic religion. Also, um, if God is the father, then you're not going to be very tolerant of someone who says God is the mother. One of the problems of dualistic religion, because it depends on humans' emotions, it can also become very volatile. You know, because you love God so much, you have such a personal relationship with God that it can turn you into a little bit of a bigot. You know, you cannot tolerate that thing which is not God. So here's the issue. When you have a force for good, one of the strategies to account for evil is to say that there is a force for evil known as shaitan, Satan, or in the Zoroastrian uh, conception, which is the first place where this idea appears, it's Ariman, uh, Aingramanyu, that evil spirit. Uh, Ariman is the Satan of Zoroaster's religion. Now, that being is responsible for all the evil in the world. So you live in a world where it's a tug of war between God and his slash hers opposite um, uh, Satan, you know? Now, the danger of this is you start to shirk personal responsibility. You know, everything is just the grace of God anyway, right? So I don't need to do anything. And partly that's the sweetness of this path. But also, you don't have to take responsibility for your moral failures because the devil made you do it. You see, that's another problem with uh, dualistic religion. The Advaitic problem, though, is this. And it's a logical problem. See, in dualistic religion, the idea is you are in a fallen state. You're broken and you're somehow less than. You're in this degenerate world of form or, 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 or world or whatever, and you need to get out of this world. The way to do it is by praying, fasting, and contemplating in order to win God's favor. God's grace takes you out of suffering and into some paradisiacal realm, right? So here's the problem. If liberation is something that starts at some point, it must also be the kind of thing that ends. Everything that starts 
must end. In other words, how can you guarantee that a liberation that starts is not a liberation that eventually ends? Do you see the logical problem here? Starting necessitates its opposite, ending. So if you say you are broken now and God's grace will save you, that redemption cannot be permanent. The fact that it started necessitates that it must end. So you will eventually fall from grace too. Advaitins say, not bad, uh, but doesn't impress us. So Advaitin says, all your mastery of science in the objective world, cool, but it doesn't impress us. It says to dualistic religion, your saving and redemption or your enjoyment in heavenly realms like the Swargas, cool, but it doesn't satisfy us. It's not the ultimate liberation. It's not the ineffable, permanent abiding in peace that your religion wanted to begin with. You know, that's the logical problem of dualistic religion. And it stems from the idea that you are born in sin, that you are, I don't mean to be like, oh, you know, bashing these religions. I mean to say that the philosophical problem is the assumption of a fallen state and the assumption that you are time bound and that liberation is time bound. So do you see, as long as liberation is time bound, it must end. So Advaita asks, can there be a non-time bound liberation? In other words, if you were always now yourself and later perfect, then we solve the problem, right? If, if you didn't need to become perfect, if you already were that, we would solve the problem. Yes, yeah, second death, exactly. Okay, so we're moving to that Advaita conception. Let's take a detour to Buddhism for a moment. Seeing the time, I realize um, I'm not really going to get into... Um, too much Buddhism, it's a very, very philosophically rigorous school. The dizzying heights of Buddhism are awe-inspiring. But suffice to say now that Buddhism um, is like scientific materialism in one sense, in that it says we don't need a god. We don't need a creator deity to explain what's going on in this world. Now, the Buddhists were able to, through meditation, intuit one fundamental fact, and that is everything in this world is causally interdependent on every other thing. Every cause is an effect and every effect is a cause. That is to say, the world is a sufficient explanation unto the world. The world can be explained in terms of itself. You see how scientific this is? You know, it's funny. Scientific materialism is like, here's this idea, and in India we laugh a little bit and we say, a little late to the party, guys, you know. <laughs> the, not only the Buddha, but Charvaka and all those guys were already saying this. The world doesn't need an outside explanation. You don't need a god to explain the world. Um, and having decided that, the Buddha does away with a uh, creator deity. The B Buddhism is an atheistic philosophy. It does away with the creator deity. It says there is no god outside this, this causally interdependence matrix, nor is there a god inside it. Because where to find it? It cannot be perceived. You know, so Buddhism rejects God entirely, but look at what Buddhism does. It's, it does one more step, which I think would frighten the scientist, but confirm modern quantum mechanics. The Buddhists go one more step and they say, because everything is causally interdependent, because everything depends on everything else, therefore everything is always in a state of flux and change. So follow this closely. Because everything is related, it's changing. The moment a cause shifts, the effect will shift. If that effect shifts, the cause will shift. So what do you perceive if not a constant flux of change? This world is just change. 
From that, the Buddhists take another step of dizzying philosophy, which we could spend an hour explaining, we won't. But the step is to say, because it changes, because these phenomena, known as dharmas, come into and leave existence, they are therefore not intrinsically real. They get their realness as a borrowed property. Um, they lack reality by virtue of their changingness. There are many ways to kind of explain this, but for now, let's just say the Buddhists are satisfied with this conclusion. Nothing exists. What you took to be the world is samsara, is a constantly changing flux of interdependence and causal effect relationships. And therefore, because it's changing, because it's void, you too are void. Your idea of who you are, your personality, your ego, yourself, that is also void. Nothing is. And you know, that solves for death. You fear death, you fear old age, you fear sickness. Because there is a you that will die, a you that will grow old, a you that will get sick, right? But what if through meditation, you were able to see for yourself that there was no you? Then you don't have to die anymore because you are no longer the one to whom death is a concern. You are no one. So when the Buddha was asked, who are you? Are you a god? He said, no. Are you, are you a sage? He said, no. He said, I'm awake. See, he wasn't able to define himself in any other way than to say, I'm awake to the fact that I am not. <laughs> and uh, Brett, put the question if you can in the chat. And uh, at the very end of the lecture, we do like four or five hours of Q&A. So definitely I will take that hand. Yes, I just want to get through the very last part of this um, so we can talk about Advaita Vedanta. So in the causal interdependence of the Buddhist, the Buddha, Shakya Muni Buddha, which of course, you know, we don't have any words from Gautama himself. Um, the writings of the Buddha appear in Sri Lanka hundreds of years after the actual Buddha. The writings appeared in Sanskrit and Pali, though we think the Buddha might have spoken some other dialect, Ardha Magara or some other Pali-like dialect. Um, so we don't really know what the Buddha actually thought. Um, but we know that early Buddhism, classical Buddhism, takes as its fundamental basis the fourfold truths so or the four noble truths. You know, and the idea is life is suffering. Um, and if you don't know that yet, you will. You'll eventually realize that in this world, there are two ways to suffer by not getting what you want. We're all familiar with that. And also by getting what you want because everything changes. Since nothing is permanent, suffering is a constant, you know. Suffering is a constant of life. Next, what causes that suffering? Trishna, meaning craving or desire. You want things to be impermanent. But the fact of the matter is, they are by nature, sorry, you want things to be permanent. But the fact of the matter is, they are impermanent. So your desire for permanence in a world of impermanence causes your ultimate suffering. Now, if the Buddha stopped there, he would be a nihilist. Right? He would be like a, a French philosopher going through his fifth pack of cigarettes by left bank, claiming that there's no existence to life, like, you know, um, the trope. But no, he went further. He said, there is a way out of suffering. I found it. And it's called nirvana. So nirvana is the negation of samsara. Sixth, Red says, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Red is there right now in France. So she'll attest to some of that early existential school. So you see, um, if, if the Buddha stopped there, he would be like a nihilist existentialist, but he didn't. It's a very optimistic and life-affirming philosophy because it says, I have discovered a higher reality. Stevie Wonder's higher ground starts to play when the Buddha achieves nirvana. He's not saying life sucks. He's saying this life sucks, but I have a better one, and that's what makes life world worthwhile, and it's called um, nirvana. 
He doesn't define what nirvana is. He only says it's the ending of samsara. So if nirvana, then not samsara. Now, this is the basic Buddhist doc- doctrine. So the Buddhists deny the existence of a self. Why? Um, for several reasons, and I, I really didn't want to get into it, but I won't. Um, there are five main reasons from Dhammakirti as to why the self can't exist. And I would love to bat them out of the way um, because you can, but I won't. Um, maybe later, you know, a, a lecture next week on Buddhism versus Advaita. But for now, the, just know that the Buddhists deny the self. They deny a thing called the self. They deny everything. They're a big fan of no-thingness. And, and a, a, a feature in Buddhism is the void, you know, shunyata, the void. Now, there are many kinds of Buddhism. That's one thing we have to remember. Um, in the Mahayana school of Buddhism, um, which is northern Buddhism, there is a lot of philosophical development of the original Buddhist ideas. Um, so much so that the, it might not even be considered Buddhism at, at some point, you know, because there are deities that get introduced, which I think the Buddha might have flipped out about. <laughs> But um, broadly speaking, in Mahayana Buddhism, there was a university. Uh, is Kaz here? I have Kaz who is in such a university right now. Yeah, there's Kaz. But there's a university, Nalanda, you know, in which a great Buddhist philosophers were starting to articulate, first and foremost, objections to Hindu duality, but also objections to Hindu non-duality. They're ancient nemesis, you know. Uh And as they were doing this, they developed very sophisticated philosophies. So very fundamentalist Buddhism is called Yogacara, meaning the mind-only school. In Yogacara, everything is illusory. It's the ultimate idealistic form of Buddhism. On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have what is called Sarvastivada Buddhism, which is the idea that these things are real. Samsara is real. But my favorite type is in the middle. It's called Madhyamika Buddhism. And it's, it's worth typing in here. Madhyamika Buddhism. It was formulated in the second century AD by Nagarjuna. So Nagarjuna is the main proponent. And look at his idea. His idea is wild. His idea is this. If samsara doesn't exist, and if nirvana is the opposite of samsara, then the opposite of a non-existent thing itself must also be non-existent, right? Ooh, do you see the logical force of that? It's enough to destroy Buddhism. I mean, Buddhism depends on nirvana, but Nagarjuna was just able to show through a simple act of logical inference that if indeed nirvana is the opposite to samsara, remember that it is. If nirvana, then not samsara. If nirvana is the opposite to samsara, and if you assert that samsara is void, then nirvana too is void. Yes or no? I mean, obviously. Now, Nagarjuna then says, in order not to get rid of Buddhism and nirvana, he makes this step, and it's a beautiful step. He says, therefore, nirvana and samsara are not dualistically opposed. They are not diametrical opposites. Nirvana equals samsara. What you are seeing as samsara is actually nirvana looked at the wrong way. Yes. Can you see how life-affirming this is? Yeah, right? And when he says that, you can imagine Buddhists all over the world going like, yes, we get it. We get what the Buddha was saying. Because you see, when the Buddha discovered nirvana, he didn't fuck off to the Himalayas. You know, you would think if someone realized everything is void, they wouldn't have any interest in engaging with the world further. They would have just gone into some cave and like sat there. But no, the Buddha, when he encountered nirvana, spent the rest of his life serving Look people. Differently. Was, yeah, Caroline, exactly. He was in love with humanity because he <laughs> fought 
all, humanity for what it is, divinity. He could see the world for what it was, nothing but beauty and meaning and joy and perfection. So when Nagarjuna says samsara equals nirvana, he's making a profound point. And the point is samsara is not separate from nirvana. What you are seeing as samsara is the very same thing as nirvana. If you could fix your perception, then you would see it for what it is. This is also known, it's, it's Madhyamika Buddhism, but it's also known as Shunyavada Buddhism. And it's, I actually prefer this word, Shunyavada. Madhyamika means middle way. It's the middle ground between Sarvastivada and uh, Yogacara. But Shunyavada means void Buddhism, you know? Um, void Buddhism. Yeah, don't worry, Heidi. A big part of today's lecture is just to kind of acclimate you to some of the terms because they are important terms. You know, they help us denote very subtle ideas in these philosophies. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes we like to paint in broad brushstrokes. Today, I thought we'd go in with a little bit of a finer brush. Many of you are veterans, you know, so for the veterans in the room, who have been doing this a long time. I hope you've enjoyed today's lecture with its finer points. And for beginners to South Asian philosophy, don't be intimidated at all by these subtle nuances. In fact, be inspired. Be inspired realizing that this is a very rich field. Recently, I was talking to someone on TikTok who um, was very upset that I was um, negating the existence of personality. I mean, of course, in Western psychotherapeutic models, um, the ego and personality is very important, right? Because you have to affirm a person's psychology so you can charge them money. No, 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 not to bash, not to bash. You have to help them on an ego level. So we were having this discussion and I was explaining how in South Asian philosophy, we negate the world as real and we negate the ego as real. And uh, my friend who I was discussing it with said, oh yeah, that's so delusional. And we're thinking, from our point of view, the samsara is delusional, you know? But ultimately, she said, I love the teachings of Buddhism. And I'm like, I know you, what, what? What do you love about Buddhism? And uh, it was like these cherry-picked ideas, you know? But it was very sad because the fundamental truth of Buddhism is that the self doesn't exist. Buddhism is founded upon anatma, the lack of a self. Um... And we're getting to Advaita. Yes, we're coming to Advaita um, in just a moment. We're closing with Advaita. So it seems like samsara because you're not looking at it the right way. In order to look at it the right way, and this is to Ledesma, I hope I'm saying that right. Do correct me in a bit. Um, the way to see it the right way is through meditation. After a series of uh, rigorous meditative practices, and that's the Buddhist way, meditation, you create a quality of mind known as shamatha. Shamatha is the quality of mind known as the tranquil mind that is able to um, see the world for what it is. For now, what you see is not the world. What you see is your psychological superimposition of the world. So you don't see the table, you see what your personal conception of a table is. In other words, what the table is to you uh, based on your past experiences with tables. You don't see other people, you only see what other people are to you. You're seeing the world in terms of bodies, in terms of personalities, in terms of egos, and that is a fictional world. That is a very superficial mental construct. The world as it is though, um, is not a world of bodies and egos. It's a world of beauty. Uh, it's a world of awareness. It's a world in which there is no perceptual difference between you and me. You see? And if you can see it that way, you won't mind spending the rest of your life serving people like the Buddha did. You won't really be interested in money uh, because you own everything. <laughs> you won't really be interested in, I don't know, like sexual gratification or craving because you no longer need that body kind of interaction to fulfill you. You're, you're just peaceful, you know? Um, 
I think they love the qualities and good that people who practice Buddhism do and mistake those for the teachings. Yes. It's funny. Uh, I think, you know, they say the Swami Vivekananda made a beautiful point. He said the West is socially liberal, religiously conservative. Whereas the East is religiously liberal, socially conservative. You see? <laughs> so that's why we have to trade. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard, I think, in the West sometimes to teach these um, finer points of religion um, because one of the the virtues of the West. Sorry to dichotomize like this, but the virtues virtues of Western thought is what's practical, what can I see, what's tangible, you know. And one of the failings of Eastern thoughts is our idealism. We're more into like the subtle stuff than how to build a railway. <laughs> Once I made a joke to my friend, we need Americans to come to India to build railways. We have no business doing that. But also we need Americans to stop poking around in the brain because they have no business doing that. That's our thing. <laughs> Let us talk consciousness. That's kind of a joke we make. But really, you know, it's not that dichotomy. Don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, and after all, it is awareness. There are no differences. So to talk about differences is a joke. Always. These differences don't actually exist. Okay. So that being the case, um, here's Buddhism. What's that? Uh-huh. Yes. Here's Madhyamaka, Madhyamaka, Madhyamaka Buddhism or Shunyavada Buddhism. Now, this appears in the second century, right? So some people say Advaita Vedanta, as, extrap- uh, as exposited by Gaurapada and later Shankaracharya, is a form of Shunyavada Buddhism. Um, they actually call Shankara a crypto-Madhyamaka. <laughs> I reject that. Um, I think that premise is incorrect. But there are some relationships. For instance, in Madhyamaka Buddhism, they say the void exists. It's Shunyavada Buddhism, after all. It's a void. But void not in the sense of nothingness. Void in the sense of a thing unlike any other thing that you've encountered. It's categorically different. You know, so nirvana equals samsara, but as a categorically different experience. It's the same thing, just experienced on different orders of reality. Okay, so now we come to Advaita Vedanta. Um, and before we do Advaita Vedanta, let me just say the problems with Buddhism. There are, um, there's a lot of debate and a lot to get into, and it's with a lot of restraint that I only say one. <laughs> but the fundamental problem with Buddhism is it proposes an error without ground. In other words, it says the world is an error without proposing an actuality upon which that error is based. You see? It's a logical point, but the point is, you cannot negate something ever without affirming something else. You can't just say nothing is, as the Buddhists do. You must affirm something, as ultimately Nagarjuna did too. You know, um, But most Buddhists, especially Theravadin schools, just negate. They're saying, there's no self. Why would you need a riverbed? They're saying in Buddhism, classical Buddhism, a river can flow without a riverbed. In other words, you can have a bundle of qualities known as gunas without the uh, substance, what Nyaya might call a dravya. Please don't worry about the Sanskrit if you're new to this. This is just for those who are like, you know, um, regulars here. But in Nyaya, remember in the Nyaya path, um, they have that talk of dravya, you know, substance, and the gunas or qualities kind of accrete around a substance. If you didn't have a substance like the rose is red and it's fragrant, those are gunas. But the gunas must belong to some substance known as rose, right? Otherwise, how can the rose hold redness and sweetness and fragrance? You know, the Buddhists say, no, 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 it's just a bundle of gunas. You don't need a dravya. You don't need a substance. It's all just change. And to that we say, it is absolutely, um, 
bizarre to suggest, and sorry, we get heated because we have loving ancient debates between our schools, but it's bizarre to say a river can flow without a riverbed to support that flow. It's so hard to posit change without a changeless point of reference. I mean, how can you attribute for change? If you left the world, you would notice the world changing, meaning you would notice the world spinning and you would notice the world going around in a circle, right? Uh, around the sun. But if you were in the world, how can you notice the world is changing? If you were a particle of water in an ocean, uh, in a river, you wouldn't know the river was moving. You would have to be on the river bank to note change. So we think it's kind of weird to posit change without a self. Meaning it's hard to say that nothing exists without positing something exists, which is what Nagarjuna does. But some people will disagree with me because he does call it void. But it's a positive void, just saying. <laughs> anyway, so now we come to Advaita Vedanta. So hopefully now, um, having had all of this background, you'll see how Advaita Vedanta speaks to and solves for a lot of the problems we encountered in the previous philosophical schools. So Advaita Vedanta says, there is one thing, and it's the only thing that exists. It's Satchit Ananda. As we said earlier, it's the principle of existence, consciousness, and bliss. Because it's the only thing that exists, that thing is you. All philosophy is a prelude to Advaita <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> didn't, make it, didn't mean to make it sound like that. Um, uh, but, you know, we're not relativist. In, in Hinduism, we're, we are really... Um, uh, open and tolerant and we believe that every path is valid but we're not relativist um, we don't say that it, it you know we say that different paths at different times for different dispositions you know um, so yeah that's important bhakti really bhakti works on its own yes thank you amanda i i have to disclaim always you know because remember today we're talking very technical philosophy and it's just the nature of the mind to find nuance, to find demarcation, you know. Uh, that's some of the joy of studying this philosophy. But when the science, like Heisenberg, or some real great mystic like Newton, when they realize that they are atoms studying atoms, when a bhakta prays and dissolves in the object of the bhakta's worship, when the Buddhist melts into the samadhi, recognizing nirvana, and when the advaitin finishes and completes his nididhyasana or her nididhyasana or their nididhyasana, they all arrive at the same place anyway. It's just fun to consider the various paths, so bear with me. Okay, so here's the Advaita conception. Only one thing exists, and given that only one thing exists, there's no room for you, by the way. There's no room for you as a separate being. <laughs> only one thing exists. Um, and notice, our philosophy is not uh, ekamsat. The name of this philosophy is not ekamsat. Ekamsat means Truth is one philosophy. No, no, no. The name of the philosophy is Advaita, not two. Why would we call it not two? Why not just call it one? Is there a difference between calling a philosophy the philosophy of one versus the philosophy of not two? And we say there is. The reason we call our philosophy Advaita Vedanta is because it starts from where you are and your experience now is one of duality. Advaita Vedanta is a move away from your appearance, your perceptual experience, into what is actually there. So it cannot be denied that we experience this world as a multiplicity. It's a world of many things. So would it be insane if I told you there's only one thing? No, that's not your experience. Your experience is, I'm over here, you know, and you're over there. 
Happily, I'm going to be able to see some of you soon. I, it's with great delight that I will cross paths with some of you. Um, but it feels like we're in different places now. You know, you're over there, I'm over here. Our bodies are separate. It feels like we have different personalities. We look around the room and there are several things. How to say it's all one when clearly I perceive two things? So Advaita Vedanta is the philosophy that says, what is in actuality a rope, and this is our metaphor, is appearing to you as a snake. There is no snake, but there is the appearance of the snake when the light is dim. The light, of course, being knowledge, the light of wisdom. When there is not wisdom, it's akin to mistaking a rope for a snake. Do you see how this is a solution to the problem of evil? You see, a scientific materialist can't solve for evil. They're just like, yeah, it happens. Um, and uh, they try their best through humanistic practice to make the world better. But good intentions are often, you know, the cause for evil in the world too. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. So all these humanistic projects like colonization, all of that, it just creates harm in the world. Um, and so the scientific materialist, having become a jaded humanist, eventually devolves to hedonism. You know, so scientific materialism doesn't know how to deal with the problem of evil, but it can medicate against that. Have a Prozac. <laughs> Dualistic religion proposes a shaitan, satan, or, um, you know, uh, ahriman or angra manu figure, um, and attributes evil to that figure, uh, but cannot really win omnipotence or omnibenevolence. The best it can do is say karma, but even that, it's kind of a negligent god who allows this karma to go on the way that it does. You know, uh, remember that the, the, the Auschwitz survivors challenged to dualistic religion. Uh, the Auschwitz survivor said, if a God exists, I forget which one, you must bring him to me and have him, have him apologize to me for what I experienced. You see, the problem of evil is really powerful in, uh, uh, yes, thank you, Anthony. Thank you. Ellie Wies, uh, Weisel. Yes. Um, but yeah, the, the, the challenge to dualistic religion of the problem of evil is a serious one. And dualistic religion is often very um, uh, hard-pressed to solve it. Now, Advaita solves it. In a way, the Buddhists solve it the same way too. By saying, what you perceive as evil is an illusion. It's an appearance. It doesn't actually exist. Uh, this sounds flippant, right? How dare you invalidate my suffering? I'm attached to my trauma. I'm attached to my suffering. Don't you understand how horrible my life has been? The answer to that is in Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, right? Because even in the worst conditions of life, Viktor Frankl was still able to write about a meaningful, beautiful life. And he was claiming that it was a matter of perception to him. This is an Advaitic statement. What you consider to be abject evil in the world is a matter of perception. Um, when you go to India and you take the train, you know, to your next Kumbha Mela, you will see all these kids in rural India and you will project onto them suffering. But their experience is not that. As, as you know, you will realize when you live with them after a while, they don't experience their life as suffering the way that someone at Starbucks with all the material luxuries experiences it as suffering. So you see, suffering is not in the world. Yes, pain is in the world. Disaster is in the world. D disease is in the world. Death is in the world. But that doesn't have to be suffering. Suffering is the psychological resistance to what is. So if it's pain, it's the conception that this should not be happening to me. Therefore, I reject this. And because I can't seem to push it away by force of will alone, I'm a victim and I suffer. So all this suffering, all this evil amounts to an hallucination. Advaita Vedanta says, we don't have to solve for the problem of evil because there is no evil. It's an appearance.
Asking why there's evil in the world is like asking how much water does a mirage need to have before it wets the desert sands. <laughs> asking what happens after death is like saying the sun was reflected in twenty cups of water. How many cups of water need to break before the sun is injured? Do you see? Your body and mind are reflections of awareness. If the body and mind die, they are like the cup that breaks. All that you lose is a reflection of awareness. The sun is not harmed by the spilling of water, nor is the desert wet by the mirage. Similarly, there cannot be evil in the world if the world itself is a mirage, is an appearance. Realize this and be free. So does this mean we reject the world? No. We're affirming an even better world, and that is the rope. So we're saying the snake doesn't exist. The world of separation, of manifoldness, of bodies, minds, and seeming good and evil and fear and love, all of that is an illusion. The rope is unity, and that unity is the only thing there is. Now, the world then, this world is varying degrees of that understanding. So Mother Teresa and Hitler are not different except in understanding. You see, it's not that Hitler is evil because we don't think such a thing as evil exists in the world. It's, it's not that there is a, such a thing as fear in the world. And we don't even call it an absence of love or an absence of good. We simply say it's a certain contracted form of love. So Hitler, he didn't harm all those people out of evil. He harmed it out of love, right? He loved his nation. He loved his religion, which was his version of some kind of weird Aryanism thing. He loved that. He loved that so much that he was willing to do untold harm to people for it. So he was suffering from a contracted love. Do you see how remarkable this idea is? We're humanizing Hitler. Yep, that's what we do in Advaita. We don't believe there's evil in the world. We just don't believe it. Uh, we don't believe there's fear in the world. We just don't buy it because we only see oneness, you see. And where there is a, a sense of evil, we say it's a contracted, limited form of that same oneness. That's what allows us to love aggressors like Hitler. We look into their eyes and we say, you're not evil. You're not categorically different from me. You just know less. <laughs> you just don't understand. You're a child. I'm not going to hate you for being a three-year-old throwing a tamper tantrum. I'm going to teach you. And you don't teach children by beating them. Many Indian parents need to learn this. You teach children by loving them. You don't solve for the Hitlers in the world by saying they are monsters and shunning them. You don't solve for the bigotry in America by calling it out as bigotry and shunning them as evil. You know, you'll just push them into middle America and eventually they will manifest political ills like the one we just saw. You know, you cannot heal the world through righteous exclusion. Righteous exclusion comes through this belief in evil, through this belief in fear, through this belief in duality, through a belief of good and evil. Non-duality solves for that by saying, what's different between Hitler and Mother Teresa is knowledge. Hitler is operating on a very limited amount of knowledge and therefore experiences a very contracted love. Whereas Mother Teresa, because her knowledge has grown to reflect the isness of it all, is acting naturally from that place of knowing and so is experiencing a very expanded love. 
So what happens when you realize non-duality? When you, through a process of philosophical inquiry into the nature, who am I, through a series of meditations known as upasana, which is contemplating very sacred teachings, or the mahavakyas that we expounded earlier, tattva masi, aham brahmasmi, uh, tat, uh, 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 ayam atma brahma, uh, pragyanam brahma, by sitting and meditating on this, eventually intellectual understanding turns into an actual realization on all levels of the being. When that realization comes, you no longer see the snake. What you see is the rope. So again, Nagarjuna, his samsara has now turned to to nirvana for you. So what does that do for you? Once you realize oneness, not only have you solved for the problem of evil and free will, uh, since there's no will, I mean, you're not doing anything, the world doesn't exist in which for you to act, right? So you not only have you solved for the problem of um, uh, evil, of free will, what you've also achieved is the ability to look at everyone as yourself. When you really understand that only awareness exists, you realize that what you're seeing is nothing but modifications of that same awareness, meaning it's you appearing to you as you. That's when you can truly love someone else. You love them not as them, because you see that love is still conditional. I love you only if you as the other do certain things for me. I have to get some physical gratification, some emotional gratification. You at least have to listen to my problems for three hours on Saturday night at the bar in order for me to love you, right? Because I'm seeing you as the other. But if I see you as me, um, then it doesn't matter how you behave. Uh, you can be um, an absolute jerk and I will love you all the same. So that's how you get unconditional love, which is the ultimate moral good you know, in many religions. Not only that, it gets selfless service. Because if you see other people as me, then you will act incredibly selfishly. And the way that works out is selflessness. As Fabricio said beautifully, the sage does not help out of charity. The sage helps out of common sense. Like you said, Fabricio, when you get a cut, you don't look at your hand and go, oh, I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to do some charity. I'm going to put a Band-Aid on it. No, you just put a damn Band-Aid on it. So you see us non-dualists do good work in the world without any drama. We don't go out with these missions saying, yeah, we're saving the world. We don't even believe the world exists. What we're seeing is not the world of change. We're not seeing the other. We're seeing the one undifferentiated sheet of awareness that scintillates every now and then as this other body, this other um, mind, and, and we know it to be one and the same awareness. That being the case, we are able to help um, without any drama. We feel a perfect love and a perfect charity. Not only that, knowing that only awareness exists, we no longer identify with the body and mind that we previously identified with, and therefore death is no longer an obstacle. Because what is death but a falling asleep to this dream and waking up in another, you know? Um, <laughs> someone is a professional here asking about Ramanuja, qualified non-duality. Um, and that is some very, very deep um, Vedanta, which we won't really do here, you know? Um, so, um, so we, you know, we should break to do this uh, morality thing, because this is a very important thing. One of the biggest op opponents to non-duality is the fear of moral relativity, or people are very afraid of loving aggressors. So someone who like acted evil in the world, the idea that we ought to love them is kind of reprehensible to people. 
you know? The idea of looking like a quote-unquote monster in the eye and recognizing a shared humanity there or a oneness there is very disconcerting to people. So we want to put Mother Teresa on a pedestal because we want to absolve ourselves of the responsibility of being like her. But we also want to put Hitler on a pedestal because we want to absolve ourselves of the responsibility of perhaps being like that if the circumstances were the same. You see, so there's a tremendous resistance sometimes to the uh, idea that it's all just love on different levels of expansion and contraction, different levels of knowledge, you know. Um, so uh, now we will open and we'll do um, Shannon and Anthony's rebuttal in a little bit and also hopefully Corey's. Uh, we won't do the Ramanuja thing today, uh, except maybe later. Yeah, Ramanuja's rebuttals are pretty good. Uh, Ramanuja Acharya came after Shankara, and he did some rebuttals on Advaita Vedanta. Um, yeah, exactly, Alex. <laughs> he was not a fan of... See, uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens would, would like to put Mother Teresa on par with Hitler, right? That she asked for, uh, what do you call it... Um, she was against birth control in Calcutta. She took money from dictators. Therefore, she was evil, you know. Um, and Christopher Hitchens has a problem with Mother Teresa because he has a problem with the church. Okay, anyway, so the Advaitic conception is there is no fear. There is only contracted love. Nor is there evil. There's only contracted good. There aren't other people. There is only awareness appearing as that. Once you recognize this, you go beyond duality and you embrace non-duality, which is a state of fearless, relaxed, open uh, spaciousness. This is how non-duality accounts for the problem of evil. And this is also how non-duality accounts for the problem in scientific materialism. It says that consciousness comes first and from consciousness comes the world. So we're going to close today with just one simple experiment to prove that. Like we said, we don't like dogma. Um, we want to show this to be true, you know? So Heidi, hopefully this can help. This is a way to prove that awareness um, precedes matter and that matter depends on awareness. And I'll do my favorite, which is the uh, uh, dreamer, waker, deep sleep argument. So the argument is as follows, briefly. Um... And Amanda says, we see what you say about not wanting to acknowledge morally uncomfortable acceptance. And we see more suffering from that because the subject has no reason to be anything other than what we perceive them to be. Right. Exactly, Amanda. In a way, when we superimpose onto someone evil, uh, evil, we affirm them in that role. You know, so if we say you are a dictator and you're evil, in a way, you're forcing them to play out that narrative. Um, but of course, this moral discussion, we can continue it. Let's just close with this. Um, Experiment. So right now, I, many of you are awake, right? Some of you are not. <laughs> Given the technical nature of today's discussion, maybe not. But uh, most of you, hopefully, God willing, are awake. So this is our waking experience. This is the waking world, right? Um, this is, as William James put it so beautifully, but one flavor of consciousness. And there are at least two other flavors that you experience and will experience shortly. So some of you are heading off to bed soon, you know. Um, and if you do that, notice this important fact. Also, Tefei is here. Welcome. I'm so happy you're joining us. I'm happy you made it. Okay, so here's the clincher. If you are going to bed, notice this one fact. When you go to sleep tonight, all of this will cease to be. 
So let's say there are some problems with the IRS right now. Let's say um, there's an illness in the body that you're dealing with. Um, there's some traumatic memories. Let's say all of that is there. Once you go to sleep, often all of that is gone. It's moot because it's traded off for some other world, the dream world. While you're in the dream, you take the dream to be absolutely real. Now, we're not talking about lucid dreaming yet, but at least for most you know, mundane dream experiences, when you're in the dream, it's as good as real to you, right? I mean, you, you actually believe in it. And when there are problems in the dream, like let's say you're being chased by an axe murderer, you actually believe that you're being chased by an axe murderer. You act in ways in the dream to preserve yourself, right? And you act in ways to get stuff in the dream. Now, no matter how bad your dream was, it could be the worst nightmare in the world, eventually you do wake up. And when you wake up from that dream, don't you feel a tremendous sense of relief? It's the relief of knowing, ah, it was only a dream. I am not in the world. I'm not, sorry, I wasn't in the dream. The dream was in me. And as such, I have some, I have all the power. All the people in the dream were me. The axe murderer was me. The victim of the axe murderer was me. The, 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 the ground on which I was running away from the axe murderer was me. The sky was me. Everything in the dream was made up of your own mind stuff. You realize this when you wake up, right? Now, why then is this world the real one? And we say it's because of memory. Yeah, in your dream, your lover was uh, unfaithful and you wake up and you're like, ah. <laughs> And sometimes in this real life, your lover is unfaithful and you go back to the dream and you have a perfect lover once again. You see? Yes. Uh, no, you aren't Vishnu's dream. You're your dream. Because <laughs> you are Vishnu, as Advaita Vedanta would say. Um, <laughs> you are Vishnu. Um, of course, a dualist won't say that, but Advaitins do. Okay. Or, or actually, no, it's not even true to say you are Vishnu. What you are made of is what Vishnu is made of. You know, the substance underlying you is the same substance or principle underlying Vishnu. Okay, so now this is already an insight. The fact that waking up from a dream invalidates the dream as real is exactly what we're talking about when we invalidate this as real. There's one other point to make here. It's not just dream, right? There's also deep sleep. So right now you're in your waking state. When you go to sleep tonight, you might enter dream, but you might also enter deep sleep. Now in deep sleep, there is no waking world, nor is there even a dream world. There is a complete absence of worlds. There is an absence of experience. And not just that, there is an absence of selves. There is no waking self. There is no niche anymore, nor is there even dream niche. However, there is still some sense of I, some sense of me. If that were not the case, why is it when I wake up from deep sleep, I'm not shocked? Notice that. Very seldom are you like, oh, where did, where, where did all that time go? You know, more, more often than not, you wake up and you say to your partner next to you, I slept deeply. I slept dreamlessly. Now, our question is, who is the I that is making that statement? It couldn't have been Nish because Nish wasn't around for that. It couldn't have been dream Nish because there were no dream experiences. It had to have been some other I. You know, some other sense of identity that was not Nish, nor was it the dream Nish. That means what you are in actuality, in this simple thought experiment, turns out to be not the dream self, not the waking self, not even the absence of self. What you are is the one who is aware of all three. 
the witness, the sakshi, the pure consciousness in which dreaming, waking, and deep sleep occurred. The next place to go with this is to suggest, without you, the sakshi, there couldn't have been the waking world, there couldn't have been the dream world, and there couldn't have been an absence of worlds. That means, and we are kind of going through it rather quickly, um, deep sleep awareness. Everyone mark this down. Uh, I've never heard him speak of it before. <laughs> oh, yeah, because Amanda, you've been here so often. Sometimes when we do the same argument over and over, we tease out new points. So in closing, given that not only are you not the waker, you are also the cause of the waker. And isn't that what God is? Isn't God the sufficient and necessary cause for the creation of the experiential world? And isn't your experiential world now waking, later dream, and perhaps even eventually deep sleep? Aren't you, the witness, the cause for that? And not even to say the cause, aren't those three things mere vibrant, uh, that's tantra, uh, appearances in you? And given that they change along the lines of Buddhist philosophy, how can they be real? And by real, we mean permanent. You know, so shouldn't this allow you tremendous relaxation? What and exactly who's to say we aren't in a dream right now? And in fact, Gaudapada, a great non-dualist, says exactly that. We are in the dream. And the dream is the dream of Maya, the dream of the world. Um, and if you ask, Advaita, what's the purpose of life? We would say, wake up. That's the purpose of life. What's the purpose of the dream? Realize it's a dream. Wake up. Because when you do, it's not that you dismiss the dream. You know, some people are afraid after a class like this, they'll walk outside and the world will be gone. Like in Coraline, it will just be white. <laughs> Their car will be gone and they can't taste. And No, no, that's not what happens. What happens to you when you truly realize this is the world no longer appears to you as an oppressive place of tyranny. It, it's no longer a place of threats. Nothing can harm you because you know yourself to not be the body and the mind. Nothing can complete you because you know yourself not to be the body and the mind. So there's no more lust, there's no more craving, and there's no more fear. In lieu of the restlessness of lust and, craving, uh, and fear, isn't there relaxation? Isn't there tremendous joy? A natural desire to serve one another? Isn't there just pure, expansive love? After all, if you must admit fear, then that at least might be an explanation for the evil in the world, right? So if fear exists, fear is why people do evil to one another. But if we get rid of fear through the understanding that you are not the mind and body, don't you also solve for the tendency to do harm? That's how Advaita gives us the ultimate moral good and also the ultimate personal good because this state frees you from suffering. So James, the answer is, um, if you realize it's a dream, if you realize the illusory nature of it, will you still grasp at things? You know? I mean, if you know that what you are grasping isn't really out there, would you still lust for it? In the example of the princess of Kashi, a young boy, the prince of Kashi, was painted as a woman, as a young child, and later as a young man, he found that painting and he lusted after the painting. He didn't know that it was he himself who was in that painting dressed up as a woman. Later, he realized that was a painting of him. He realized the object of his lust was just him dolled up. <laughs> when you realize that, when you realize that everyone is you, is there craving anymore? How could there be? You know, it vanishes like a dream. Of course, this is a process. And the process is 
uh, Shravana, listen to the teaching. So Heidi, you've taken a first step. You've heard the teachings um, in a broad kind of overarching and sometimes very technical way today. Uh, I gave you the advanced version. You know, this wasn't a beginner's class, certainly. Um, but you heard the teaching. Shravana starts the process. Then comes Manana, which hopefully we will do now. I am 17 minutes late, but we will do that now. We're going to open the floor and we're going to do Manana. Shravana means listen. Manana means debate. So like we said, this isn't a dogma. It's an open debate. So you should be able to voice concerns and the philosophy should be able to reply. So manana is when you think about it, when you work through it. Now, once you've shravanad it, once you've mananad it, now you must go and sit with it. That is having heard it and having properly understood it, you must sit with it and contemplate it in the peaceful um, atmosphere of meditative awareness. That is to say, upasana meditation contemplative meditation. You sit and you dwell upon this idea. Is this not a dream? Or who am I? Am I this body? If I'm the body, how come I can observe the body? I must be the subject and the body is the object. How could I be the body when I'm the observer of the body? Am I the mind? No, I'm observing the mind. I'm the awareness watching the mind. So how can I be the mind? Am I Nish? No, Nish is a collection of thoughts in the mind. How can I be the niche if that's in the mind and if I'm not the mind? You see, you do this process. You inquire. Uh, and when something happens to you in life that causes you pain, you question, to who is this, who, to whom is this harming? You know, like, um, does my lover belong to me such that I should be upset when they are unfaithful? Um, can I even say my lover? Whose lover? Who is there to claim this person? Or, um, is there's a cut in my, uh, in my leg, um, who's to say uh, it's my leg? You know, isn't is this pain necessarily my pain? Is it not just a vibration in consciousness, like the smell of garbage or the smell of lavender? I don't think smelling lavender makes me a good person, nor do I think smelling garbage makes me a bad person. So why do I think suffering, I mean, pain has anything to do with me any more than a passing smell of garbage, you know? You see, you have to do this. You have to sit and you have to work through the philosophy. You have to debate it. And ultimately, at some point, the intellectual realization will flower into a lived experience. But until that point, yoga is indispensable. You must do the asana to fortify the body. You must do the pranayama to fortify the etheric body. You must work through the philosophy. You must meditate diligently to calm and pacify the mind so that this insight can be gleaned. So it's a funny kind of approach. It says you are not the mind and body, so you better practice with the mind and body until you realize that. You better master the body, master the mind, master your attention only to realize that you were never any of those things. And so we'll close with uh, one of my favorite verses. Someone mentioned Sarva Priyananda, very beautiful monk who I love deeply from the Ramakrishna mission. And this is also his favorite um, mantra. And it's also Bhuteshananda Ji's favorite mantra. So iPhone to everyone, iPhone. Um, uh, Sarva Priyananda, he's the current minister at uh, New York, but the old minister Bhuteshananda Ji, he also liked this mantra. It's from the Brihad Aranyak, and I'll chant it for you. And like we promised, we'll chant the a little bit of the Nirvana Shatakam. And we'll close there. So, to summarize Advaita Vedanta, let us chant this line from the Birhad Aranyak Upanishad. 4.4.12 And it is as follows. 
Atmanam Chadvijaniyat Ayamasmiti Purushaha Kimichan Kasya Kamaya Shariram Manusangjvare If a person knows herself as the self, then desiring what and for whose sake should she suffer along with the fevers of the body? Asangoham, asangoham, puna, puna, asangoham. I am unattached. Unattached am I. Again and again do I sing, I am unattached. Chidananda rupaha, shivoham, shivoham. Chidananda rupaha, shivoham, shivoham. I am of the nature, consciousness and bliss. I am Shiva, I am Shiva. I am of the nature, consciousness and bliss. To me, there is no pain, there is no pleasure. There is no punya, no papa, no merit, no demerit, no family, no enemies, no strangers, no familiars. To me, there is no happiness, no sorrow. To me, there is only this. I am pure consciousness. I am pure bliss. I am Shiva. I am Shiva. I pray that we all recognize this truth in this life and live freely and happily forevermore. Om Shanti 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 Hi. Peace, peace, peace. Thank you all so much for being my teachers. We'll end the lecture here. Um...